everyone. Welcome to another round of questions uh, at Tennis with an Accent. This is Sakib, your host. Uh, you hopefully know me by now. Today we have a special guest. It's Matt Zemek. Most of you probably know him on Twitter, and he contributes uh, writing tennis articles on Patreon. I mean, I personally love his commentary on Twitter. It's very articulate, very informed. So uh, I hope uh, you enjoy this chat. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Sakib. Thank- thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So yeah, this was a pretty exciting week uh, in the, in Cincinnati, especially the men's version because it was depleted field, and Grigor Dimitrov finally has fulfilled some of the promise that he held for years. So are you going to hold it against him that he came through in such a depleted field, or he cannot control that? Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where you can't ignore the fact that he uh, came through a depleted field. Uh, but in the, in the same breath, everyone knew this was going to be an incredible opportunity for a lot of people. And Dimitrov uh, lost to Robin Hassa, uh the week before in Montreal, which was a typical Dimitrov loss, you know, a head-scratching loss, a match, you know, he generally should win. So the fact that he has squandered so many opportunities in the past, you know, we ought to give him credit for making full use of an opportunity this time, I mean, and, and everyone knows it doesn't need to be explained that if if you know he uh, has to play uh, Djokovic, Murray, Federer, Nadal, you know he's going to be the underdog. He won't be expected to win, and he probably won't win. But the the the, the insight I have for Dimitrov after Cincinnati is specifically that a year ago Karolina Pliskova. Uh, won in Cincinnati, and that was really her epiphany. That was when the light went on for her, and we wondered if it was a fluke, you know, because everyone was fried after the Rio Olympics, so she came through a depleted field. She did beat Kerber in the final, but Kerber was toasted. Kerber was absolutely exhausted, so, you know, it was easy to think for Pliskova in Cincinnati a year ago that, oh, you know, it was a depleted field, people were tired, doesn't really mean much, but we saw that actually it did mean a lot. And just just the experience of actually winning, of putting together great tennis for a full week, it transformed the way Pliskova uh, approached her tennis. It, it tr- transformed her results. You know, she's now number one in the world. And so that is the potential this tournament can have for Dimitrov. I'm not. I wouldn't bet that it's going to have a Pliskova-like effect. I mean, I don't think we're going to see Dimitrov in the top three a year from now, but I do think that it, it gives him a, a much better chance of being able to, you know, have good tournaments on a, on a somewhat more consistent basis. I think we might now see a player who makes several Masters semifinals a year, you know, maybe three or four, and you know, who doesn't go into these two- or three-month periods where he totally bottoms out. So so I think that, you know, he's not going to start beating the big four regularly or even, you know, a slight majority of the time, but I do think he can be right behind the big four uh, when they uh, come back from injury. So you think uh, it's uh, it won't be too premature to accept uh, expect this momentum to carry over at Flushing Meadows? For, for Dimitro fans? Well, specifically for the U.S. Open, and, and this is this is something I adhere to 
for every major tournament a week before, and that is you got to wait until the draw. Uh, you, you have to see the draw and what it looks like uh, because the, the fact that Murray is playing, you know, that's going to bump Federer down to the third seed, and it's going to, you know, it's going to it's going to readjust uh, the nature of the draw, and so where Dimitrov falls in in that context, you know. It's it's going to matter a lot, I think, you know, in terms of whether you're in Murray's quarter or Federer's quarter, or whether you're in uh, Nadal's quarter or Zverev's quarter. Uh, we gotta we gotta wait for those things to happen uh, before getting a a bigger sense of of uh, what Dimitrov's chances are. But I mean, if 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 Dimitrov does get Murray's quarter. He, he will have an excellent chance of being a semifinalist, and that would certainly give him a lot of momentum heading into the fall indoor season and then into the Australian Open, and we could begin 2018 looking at him in a very different way. Okay, so let's switch our conversation to the man who Dimitrov beat in the finals, Nick Kyrgios. I mean, this is, guy, this is a guy who's turning out to be, you know, enigma. You know, each tennis generation has one. And I personally thought uh, he was playing inspired tennis because Sasha Zverev rightfully made the conversation about him the previous week in Montreal. And I think Nick was playing with a chip here, in a way saying, don't forget about me, and he almost delivered the title. What do you see of his week? Well, to to just, to uh, deal with Kyrgios also means dealing with Nadal. Um, that was a, a match which, uh, as people generally know, but it's worth just reinforcing this point, it was a match that was the second match of the day for both players. And especially since Kyrgios played three sets against Ivo Karlovic. Now, I know that Karlovic won't you know, create long rallies, and I think that, that obviously helped Kyrgios, but he still played three full sets. So against Nadal, a guy who has been healthy this year, which is a rarity for him, uh, I expected that Nadal match to be an attritional match. I expected it to be a physical match, the kind of match that Kyrgios doesn't win. Uh, but he was able to get on top. Nadal started flat, and so Kyrgios was able to get on top of that match. He won the first set quickly. And then as soon as he, as soon as Kyrgios flinched when he was serving for the match at 5-4 in the second set, Nadal immediately donated the break back with a series of errors at 5-5. So, Nadal was really a, a puzzle these past two weeks in Canada and Cincinnati. You know, physically, he was not impaired. And yet, when he got to important moments against Shapovalov and then against Kyrgios, he just didn't seize the moment the way he normally does. Now, I mean, if Nadal, Nadal played uh, the 2015 and 2016 hardcore seasons with that kind of uh, timidity and that lack of conviction. But given the fact that he made the Australian Open final and the Miami final earlier this year, I was certainly expecting him to be really good uh, these past two weeks, but he, but he wasn't. And Kyrgios, uh, despite having played those three sets earlier on Friday, um, he was you know physically okay for that match against Nadal. And that gets to a specific point about Kyrgios, is that, that, that the conditions for that Nadal match were very pleasant. It was, it was the coolest night of the tournament uh, in Cincinnati. There was a lot less humidity. That helped Kyrgios get through. And if you switch then to Sunday against Dimitrov, uh, 
That was the hottest day of the tournament, I believe. The temperatures were uh, 93 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, that was one of the hotter days of the tournament, and that's where Dimitrov's fitness really came in toward the end of the match. When Kyrgios started throwing in those double faults, uh, he tried to end points very quickly. Uh, Dimitrov was the much fitter man, and uh, that, that certainly uh, influenced the outcome. So to deal with Kyrgios heading into the U.S. Open, you know, he'll have to play five-set matches. He'll have to play at least a few matches, most likely, in difficult weather conditions. So it's going to be a different dynamic for him, and it's going to be more of an uphill battle. But to be able to see him turn on the switch and dominate with his serve, you know, the way he has in the past, the way he did in March when he beat uh, Djokovic twice, uh, once in Mexico and then uh, once in uh, Indian Wells, uh, you know, when, when we get to 2018, if he can build up that fitness level, if he can build up that stamina, you know, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with, no question. And I think his seeding would be in that bracket where he probably could play the top one of the top four seeds in the round of 16. So that's going to be interesting who he ends up with. If it's Murray again, you know, and depending on Murray's fitness, if uh, that, that, that's going to be something, you know, to focus on when the draw comes out. Yeah, let me let me ask you what if if we get a Kyrgios Murray fourth round match, which way would you lean? Because we know that Murray is really Kyrgios's kryptonite. Murray has the tactics and the the style of play that defuse Kyrgios. But since Murray's fitness is such a wild card, how how, how would you size up that matchup? I think it's interesting. I spoke to Nick in Miami when Nick was playing well. I got a chance to speak with him briefly, and he said, I asked him the same question. You've beaten Djokovic. You've troubled Federer. I mean, that time, he had beaten Federer in Madrid, and he'd beaten Nadal. So he said the same thing. He said, Murray someone, you know, who brings out a ball back, and it's been a challenge, but he would like to play him in his current form. But now, I don't think Nick is in that form. I mean, he's getting better. And to answer your question, if Murray does get that far, I would still think Murray, the first two sets would be key. Because Murray has that ability to get Nick's serve back when Nick's not winning more than, say, 70% on his first serve. He's struggling because that means the opponent is getting close to deuce in some games. That's the same tactic I think Dimitrov uh, had working for him. Because if you look at uh, Nick Kyrgios, like when he's playing Nadal or having running through the draws, he's winning uh, first serve points close to 88% or 92%, 93%. So I think Andy Murray is that kind of a matchup because he puts a lot of balls in play, low slices, and I think uh, Gregor, uh, sorry, Nick, struggles in that match. But then every match is a new chapter, and if uh, Nick wants to reverse that head-to-head, that fourth round could be the best opportunity, provided Nick himself, you know, his hip is willing to go the distance if the match is, you know, a long one and under humid and hot conditions. Uh, let me and let me follow up then. I mean, you talked about Kyrgios, and, 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 you know, I just talked about Nadal a little bit. What What is your sense of Nadal heading into the U.S. Open? And, and, when I ask you that, you know, one of the uh, specific plot points is that, you know, Nadal's winter hardcourt season was so good, but this summer hardcourt season has not gone in the right direction. Uh, what do you think accounts for the differences uh, between those two uh, hardcourt portions of his 2017 tennis season? Is there something... Uh, in, in terms of tactics that, that he is or isn't doing differently, or is it just a matter of not playing the big points well, or is it something else? I think it's a combination of what he just said, the latter, not playing big points well, and he's the guy, you know, who's uh, building his confidence, in my opinion, by a lot of court time. 
Uh, Montreal is a tournament uh, by his hardcore standards. He's always done well there. And I was there when he lost to Shapovalov. That was a match where I think uh, he would not admit, but I think he, obviously most players get affected in the crowd, so against you. But in Cincinnati, it was the other way around because Nick is a guy who just Americans uh, haven't really warmed up to and they want Nadal to win. So I was very surprised at the same game that you mentioned at 5-all. That was, that was a Nadal of, I think, 2015 when he was hitting a lot of balls into net or, you know, outside the court. So I didn't watch that full match. I watched, you know, from 5-all when Nick Kyrgios was able to close it. So, yeah, definitely Nadal, if you go back into the winter uh, in America when, or the spring when he was doing well after Australian Open, that Nadal was, I think, more aggressive and there was some continuity he was building on in matches which is missing uh, in this depleted uh, August, you know, uh, Masters 1000 where Nadal could only win two or three matches. So, again, confidence is the key. And I, to me, something is missing, even though he had a great French Open and even did better at Wimbledon this year, even though that was a heartbreaking loss against Jules Muller. Uh, to answer your question, I think yeah, Nadal is coming a little undercooked. He may have the ranking. Draw would be key for him to make the second week if he gets into a Fonini or a Pui kind of a match. Again, there were glimpses of Rafa who may not, you know, advance past. But then every day is a new day. Yeah, and, and you know, you know that Nadal wants Dominic Team in his quarter. I mean, that that would uh, that would make his prospects in New York uh, improve because everybody wants to to have Dominic Team close by on hard court after uh, the way he's played this hard court season. Yeah, he's had some gut wrenching losses. Anyway, last question that I have for you on the men's side is. Uh, how is the arrangement for Federer? For the first time in his career, I believe he'll be coming to New York without playing in Cincinnati. He got his matches. I mean, he played the number of matches he usually plays in Cincinnati. You know, he lost the final, but he got those five matches. You think he's a little undercooked in preparation, or this is, again, an ideal situation for him to beat and run through the field? Well, you know, it comes down to his back, and, and whether those spasms are, are you know, have receded and, and, and if they don't come back. If, if he's in reasonably good health, um, you know, a, a second week result is, you know, should be beyond obvious. Uh, the question will be, you know, if he get when he gets into the quarters and the and or the semis, um, if he'll be able to raise his game. You know, it's it's he was obviously able to answer every challenge that was presented to him at Wimbledon, but you know, it, the the biggest challenge really was a, a first set tiebreaker uh, in a few different matches. Uh, one against uh, Misha Zverev in the third round, and then uh, the tiebreaker against Burdick in the uh, semifinals. I know he had to play another tiebreaker in the second set, but really, the first a first set tiebreaker has pressure um, because you know that determines whether you're going to have a long match or or a, a, you have a gateway toward a shorter match. So beyond a few tiebreakers, Federer really didn't get the best stuff. Uh, from anyone on the ATP tour at Wimbledon. And so it raises the question if, you know, someone is going to be able to play at a much higher level against him in the U.S. Open. And, and you know, that level was displayed by Sasha Zverev in the Montreal final uh, in the first set and a half before um, those back spasms kicked in. Uh, in terms of assessing Federer's game, the real source of mystery was and is his serve. Uh, it was really below, well below his standards in Montreal. And my, my point of uncertainty goes to the fact that there was just a three week break 
between Wimbledon and Canada this year. You know, a few years uh, a few years ago, that was a four week break between Wimbledon and Canada. But when the calendar moved to create an extra week between Roland Garros and Wimbledon, that extra week between clay and grass the, the meant that the calendar shrank. Uh, between the end of Wimbledon and the start of the summer hardcourt season. And Federer made a calculated gamble, at least in my mind, that because he skipped the whole clay season, that he could come back after Wimbledon to Canada on three weeks rest instead of four weeks rest, you know, because of the, the, uh, time off he had earlier in the season. And, you know, heading into Sunday, that, that Montreal final, it looked like a great decision, but then the back spasms came up and, well, it's ultimately hard to say that that decision, you know, fully worked out for him. Uh, and, and, and in terms of his game, the serve seemed to suffer more than anything else. He can probably get by with a, with a mediocre serve in the first three rounds, uh, of the U.S. Open, maybe even the fourth, uh, but certainly when he gets to the second week, uh, that serve has to be popping for him, uh, for, in order for his U.S. Open to, to be on schedule and to go as planned. And, and that, so that's gonna be the thing to watch, um, whether Federer succeeds or fails in New York. And hot weather would help, you know, in aching back. So I'm sure Fed fans all over the world would be hoping for temperatures, you know, around the 90s. Absolutely. Alright, so a quick segue before we, Wrap this up. Uh, what do you think of the women's tour? Uh, Magaruta, Halep, uh, what do you make of that final? Uh, is Garbini a changed person? A lot of people are talking about, you know, since that infamous, uh, uh, press conference in Roland Garros post losing to Ladanovic. And, uh, what's going on in Halep? A combined question. Yeah, well, you know, when, when Magaruta won Wimbledon, you know, that represented her answer. Um, to Roland Garros and that wrenching, uh, press conference. And I think the, the point to make about that is that once Muguruza made that statement to Roland Garros, that repre- that enabled her to make that leap in confidence to the point that she not only can bring her best tennis to the court each week, but she fully wants to. Um, she's fully invested, fully motivated, um, you know, she was, she was obviously searching for that ability to play consistently each week. And I think winning Wimbledon enabled her to say, aha, I got it. I, I know this. I can figure it out. I have everything I need. Um, and, and so she's on that track. Halep is to me the most fascinating, you know, top five or, you know, contending player on the WTA because on one hand, you know, in the last two games of that match against Muguruza on Sunday in the Cincinnati final, you know, she won it off the court. But I mean, she, she was getting demolished. So, you know, it's, it's hard to blame a person who is absolutely getting kicked in the teeth, you know, for saying no mas. I mean, that's, that, that's an understandable response. It's not as though the match was particularly close or competitive. Um, balance that with the fact that, you know, Halep has actually responded pretty well to that Roland Garros loss to Ostapenko. You know, quarterfinals of Wimbledon, came close to beating Conta and making the semis, uh, you know, made the semifinals in Toronto, final in Cincinnati. She's actually, she actually keeps getting back off the mat each week and responding well. 
so, you know, it's easy for critics to look at her body language and how she criticizes herself, but in a much larger context, she keeps fighting. You know, she's not falling off the radar screen. She's not going into a period where, you know, like, say, Dimitrov in older times, you know, had a, 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 she'd have a first round or second round flame out. That's not happening with her. So uh, she's a very fascinating psychological profile, and I do think that heading into the U.S. Open, not being number one and having lost to Muguruza, that's going to put her a little bit off the radar, and I think that's good for her. I think that if she had been number one heading into New York, you know, all the spotlight would be on her. She'd get a trillion questions about, oh, you're number one and you haven't won a Grand Slam, you know. So, uh, you know, Caroline Wozniacki can can relate to that, and 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 uh, as can Carolina Pliskova. So, how Halep and how also Pliskova and Wozniacki, both contenders, how they handle the the spotlight. Uh, in New York, you know, th- those are going to be some wild card questions. And, 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 and for, Pl- for Pliskova, it's particularly interesting because this was the major tournament where she really announced her presence to the world. I mean, Cincinnati was her breakthrough last year, but the U.S. Open really confirmed that, ah, she had really arrived. How she does in this return, uh, that's going to be a fascinating question. I think the WTA uh, is going to have a spectacular tournament, and also the draw later this week uh, is, you know, is going to shape the storylines. It might not shape necessarily who wins and loses, but it's it's going to shape the storylines and which players can meet in the semifinals and final. Uh, that's going to be fascinating to watch. What 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 are your thoughts on the WTA uh, as we head into the USO? Um, my thoughts resonate a lot with what you said, but. Uh... For Simona Halep, I mean, it's kind of uh, it's hard to see a player of that caliber going away in big matches. Even her loss, I think, was it to Svitolina? Was pretty much a similar scoreline when she couldn't really muster many games. But um, like you said, she her profile is very different than uh, Dimitrov. She hasn't completely gone away. She comes back after a brutal loss and still is finding a way to contend. And my focus is mostly on uh, these two players, and also I think Johanna Conta could, you know create a narrative because uh, I think uh, the pressure playing at Wimbledon was is always too much for players from Great Britain. Uh, I watched her a bit playing in Miami. She won the tournament. So she's uh, one person, again, they could be 7-8 who could end up winning this tournament or even more. So, yeah, the draw is huge, but I think uh, WTA will have a very different narrative going in the Open because uh, compared to the ATP because ATP still has Federer Nadal and some solid favorites like Zverev. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see that how the fortnight unfolds. And uh, I just saw Kristina Pliskova uh, yesterday in, uh, in New Haven. She's, again, one of my dark horse. I know I'm already going into dark horse. I really like that lefty serve, the game. And uh, I'm just surprised why she's not making a send uh, to the top echelon of the rankings, at least crack top, top 20, when her sister is already you know, read the summit. Well, it's fascinating to consider that, you know, one year after, you know, her sister... Uh, made a breakthrough that maybe she's due for one and, and, and as though, you know, she needed to see, uh, the calendar and, and she needed to see her sister's tennis evolve and maybe she needed, uh, 12 months to kind of collect notes and then gather herself to make a run. That, that'll be a very interesting plot point without, without doubt. Definitely. So, Matt, thanks for your time and I'm sure, you know, uh, we'll 
pick your brains again at some point in this podcast. It was wonderful speaking with you. Likewise, and have have a, a heck of a lot of fun covering the U.S. Open these next few weeks. It's going to be fantastic. Absolutely, looking forward. So those of you again, you know, I'm sure you know Matt, and if you don't give it, give him a follow and check out, you know, his writing. It's just you know very informative and a very balanced take on tennis. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.